0: Thanks for coming out guys, excited that you're here. First thing that we're going to do is make you feel a little awkward, less awkward than I was originally planning, but we're going to do a little bit of an exercise, something that I learned from my brother, he took it uh, from, his, he does it with his college kids over there at Keystone, so this is what we're going to do. All right, You have 60 seconds on the clock, I'll, I'll, I'll look at the clock, I'll tell you when it starts. I'm going to ask you a question, you need to look to the people around you, two or three people or whatnot. And you need to answer the question, come up with an answer, and then, if you can, come up with one biblical reference along with the question, okay? You guys ready for this exercise? You got your partner? Yeah? Look to the person awkwardly to the left or right and say, you're in. They have to do it. Okay. Here's the question. You ready? 60 seconds. I better get out my phone, too. Let's check to see if you guys actually have 60 seconds. All right. Question. My son... My two sons have a rare disease and they will die at a young age. I want to believe in God, but how can I believe in a supposedly good God who would allow this kind of evil to happen to my two innocent sons? 60 seconds, go. No hints. All you. Better have a good answer, Lane. <laughs> All right, 30 seconds, 30 seconds. You got 10 seconds. Okay, okay, okay. Look back up here. Alright, so, originally what I was going to do, is I was going to have one of you guys come up here and actually share your answer with me, but... I think we'll save that for next week, which is a hint of what we'll be doing next week, which is super practical, so prepare yourself if you do come. But the point of that kind of an exercise is to show that for some people, I mean, that's, that's a really hard question. Probably one of the most deep, just one of the most hardest questions you, could, you would probably ever be asked when you're talking to somebody. But the point is, is that po- apologetics are practical. They're very practical, and while apologetics, uh, they are a different study from evangelism. You don't want to mix them up totally. They are a different study, but when you're working with people, what you're going to come to find out is that it's almost impossible to do evangelism without actually doing apologetics at the same time, Uh, especially when you look in the book of Acts and you see apologetics being done, they're always going hand-in-hand, both apologetics and evangelism. So I think that the misconception that a lot of people have when it comes to apologists in general is that they kind of view them as these old white guys sitting on leather chairs, smoking a cigar, debating an Oxford uh, atheist. You know, just kind of that misconception. If that's kind of the misconception, at least that's the misconception that I had about them. If that is what you're thinking about them, then you're wrong, because... If you are a Christian, you are an apologist. You are an apologist, each and every single one of you. If you're a Christian, you are an apologetic evangelist. You're either a good one or you're a bad one. You know, because honestly, it's one of the few, evangelism, I should say, is one of the very few gifts that were given to some, like our dear friend Chuck to clean, but commanded of every single one of us, right? Great commission. None of us are going to get out of this job. I mean, just think about it for a second. My, my Curtis Jots, I don't know if he's in here or not. I see Lisa here. I don't know if Curtis is in here. But he was at Taco Hangover the other day. And he had a, he had a Salem shirt on. And one of his uh, waiters just came up to him and he asked him, well, why do you go to church? Well, the answer that he gives him, he's going to have to give him the answer. And the answer that he gives him is going to be an apologetic one. It, it, it might be a bad one. <laughs> I hope it's not a bad one. But it might be a bad one. But the answer he gives is Paul Jack answer. Now, how many, by raise of hands, how many of you guys are uh, uh, stay-at-home moms? Raise of hands. Yeah? We got a number of them in here. Kaylee, my lovely wife, you're a stay-at-home mom. Do you ever have to, did you ever have to teach Carter to say no or, or to ask why, I mean? No. Yeah, kids, they're pretty good at being philosophers by themselves. They ask why all the time. So what if, role-playing here, you're talking about God at home, your kid comes asks you and comes up to you and just asks you why. Well why? Well, the answer that you're going to give them is going to be an apologetic answer, whether you like it or not. So what we need to know is just like our staple verse up here in First Peter 3:15, we need to be ready to give an answer, because each and every single one of us are apologists, if you are a Christian. Uh, and when we look through the Bible apologetics, it's not a new concept. Uh, It's not something that's been invented recently. When you look at even just an Acts with Paul, like I said before, Paul was used apologetics all the time. Acts 17.2, As usual, Paul went into the synagogue, and on the three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Acts 19.8, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly over a period of three months, arguing and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Acts 28. Twenty-three. He tried to persuade them about Jesus from both the law and the prophets. Um, so, since last week, my dad, what he did is he really focused on apologetics from the Bible. How would you answer somebody like a Jehovah Witness uh, using Scripture? So, a Jehovah Witness comes up to you and says, "Well, Jesus isn't God; he's the Son of God." Well, where in Scripture do I need to go to answer that kind of question? That's what my dad focused on last week, what I'm really going to be focusing on is how to uh, answer or use persuasive reasons outside of the Bible. And I know some people may be thinking, oh, outside the Bible, it's heresy. Uh, Now, I'm not trying to be anti-Bible here, but honestly, when you think, or when somebody who doesn't believe that God exists comes up to you and asks, well, why do you believe that God exists? Uh, you, you could say, well, Genesis 1 says that God created everything. Psalms 19 says that the heavens declare uh, uh, that, that God exists and that the heavens declare that, you know, He's there and whatnot. But it may not be all that convincing to that person uh, because that's a little bit of circular reasoning right there, right? I believe that God exists because God tells me He exists, right? But fortunately for us, God has indeed created logic, and has given us good logical reasons outside the Bible to believe in his existence so that we can move that person from a belief in God to a belief in the gospel. And that's really my goal today is to kind of show you how, or at least how I've done that, or how you can do that, and you should be doing that. Uh, but instead of lecturing you over obnoxious words, you know, like the ontological, cosmological, teleological argument, and probably putting my, my friend uh, Brett Funkhauser to sleep back there. Uh, what, what I'm going to do instead, I think, sorry to call you out like that, Brett, I love you. Uh, I think it'd be more practical to role play a, a real conversation, just to role play how you can incorporate those good reasons and those good arguments uh, in an evangelistic conversation without really talking over a person's head. Um, so I'm on this. so I, I think that Paul gives us the best, example or the best outline to do this in, in Acts 17 when he is in Athens. And I really do think that he lays out the perfect outline for us, uh, an example for us how to be good apologetic evangelists. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Acts 17. I'm not going to be dissecting the text. It's not, I'm not going to be exegetically walking through this, but I, I do just want to hit on the outline that Paul really gives us Uh, for how we can engage or how we should engage people who believe differently than us. And the outline that he gives us can be summed up in these three right here. Paul is telling us that we need to have a heart for the lost, we need to have an eye for the culture, and we need to have a mouth to speak the gospel boldly. So if you're there starting in verse 16, Acts 17 uh, it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So just a little background, here's Paul, he's been run out of the past two cities that he's been with, he's with his buddy Paul and Silas, they get split up, he's stuck in Athens by himself, he looks around, and he is deeply distressed, Luke says, he's the author of, of, of Acts, and he says that he is deeply distressed by the godlessness in this city, this is first-century um, Athens, okay, and, the, and a common phrase there in Athens was it's more common to find a god than a man in that city because everywhere you look you'd see you'd see idols you'd see idols on the street corners you'd see idols in their houses and so Paul was looking around and, and he was deeply distressed and that word distressed. And the Greek literally means an, an inner pressure or, or an inner anguish. So Paul is having this, this deep, deep inner pressure when he sees just a sea of lost people. And the reason why I say this is the first step in, in, in becoming a, an effective or a good apologetic evangelist is because it was a, such a key lesson for me when I first got into apologetics um, because if if you love apologetics, and I know there's some people out here do, and they fall into that category like me, it's so easy to to love it for all the wrong reasons, you can love it because of the knowledge, you can love it because of the debating, you can love it because you just want to prove your intelligence, or just show, yeah, I'm, you know, there's really a couple types of people, the people that love to ask people questions, or, and the people that hate to ask people questions, you know, because they're a little nervous, but those people that are like, yeah, I'm going to get them with this answer. I'm going to stick them with it. Well, that was me. But honestly, when you think about that, if, if, if you have a heart like that, then you don't really have a heart for the lost. You have a heart for yourself, if you're being honest. Um, and that really is the first lesson that I learned, and I think we all need to learn. And, and unfortunately, the reason why people think that apologetics are, you know, a bunch of snobs sitting around and just debating is because people who love apologetics they tend to be self-righteous and thinking that they're so intelligent while everybody else is, is not so much. It's really, apologetics can be a breeding ground for pride. And, and that's really one of the first things that I had to learn about apologetics. And I think that's what Peter wanted us to learn going back to our staple verse in First Peter 3.15, where he says, be ready to defend the faith at any time, yet, verse 16, the verse right after, do this with gentleness and respect. So our focus in apologetics should never be on the intellect or the desire to prove someone wrong. It absolutely needs to be our desire to see lost souls saved by the gospel. Amen? Good. Good amen. Uh, <laughs> so so how can we have a heart for the lost? And and one of the most practical Some of the most practical advice I've ever been given by my mentor that he's been kind of pounding it in my head for the past couple of years now, Chuck DeClean, is learn to love people by spending time with them. Learn to love people by spending time with them. The old um, saying that I feel like every preacher in the world claims and that nobody really knows who said it is nobody cares what you know until they know how much you care. That is a very, very true statement. Uh, so, and everybody knows that's true. If you go into a conversation and you just start spatting off like, okay, I'm going to, like I said before, I'm just going to prove this guy wrong or I'm going to, oh, I'm going to get him. But nobody likes that guy and nobody respects that guy, right? So the opposite of that is asking them questions, spending time with them, actually enjoying them in a friendship sort of a, sort of a way. And caring more, I mean, Abe Miller is the, the prototype, and he always gets mad at me when whenever I just want to give my opinion, we'll sit down, and he's like, yeah, dude, I mean, okay, but you, you just sat there and talked for the first, like, 15 minutes without asking me a single question. Like, you look pretty selfish right now. Like, that's, that's pretty true. I mean, enjoying to ask questions, enjoying spending time with people. Uh, I, I really do think that's the first step to be an effective apologetic evangelist, is to have a heart for the lost by befriending the lost and building up a relationship with them. Uh, the next step that Paul shows us is that we ought to have an eye for the culture. Um, so if you look back at Acts 17, you're gonna look, you're gonna, if, you're, if you read through the whole text, I mean the text I'm talking about is 16 till the end of the chapter, you're gonna see Luke uh, describe Paul in the culture using visual terminology Three different times. In verse 16, he says, I saw that the city was full of idols. Verse 22. He says, I see that you are extremely religious. Verse 23. I observe your objects. And he's looking around. These are all visual words he's using right now. So what Paul is doing, essentially, right here, is he is observing the culture he is in, and then he is presenting the most compelling case for them to believe the gospel. Uh, But if you're going to read his argument, which is really interesting, and you can do that on your own time, uh, but if you're going to read his argument, 22 to basically the end of verse 29, what you're going to see is Paul doesn't take the same approach he usually does. Usually, Paul will, uh, he'll go into the synagogue and he'll start debating uh, how Jesus was the fulfillment of prophecy in the Old Testament. He'll go to the Bible and he'll go to the Old Testament and say, see, this is Jesus. Now, Jesus is the Messiah, so therefore, you should believe in him. He really did rise from the dead. But he doesn't do that with the Athenians. He starts with creation. He, he's walking through creation. And then even he goes and he starts quoting their own poets. That's really interesting because the reason why he does that is because he's observing, I'm not around any Jews right now. i got to start elsewhere. So that's what he's doing. What really, essentially, what Paul is doing is he has observed the culture he was in, and he is meeting the people where they are at, at their understanding or in their understanding of God. And that's another huge lesson that we all have to be doing. We have to be meeting the culture where they're at. And it is a case-by-case thing. It's not a section-by-section. It is a literally individual-by-individual thing. I, had, I mentioned them briefly last week. I, I, I used to work with two guys, both of them unsaved. Um, one... Had uh, thought he was a Christian, but really just had a false idea of of the gospel. The other one was just a skeptic in general. And so with the one, the, the first one, I started with the gospel. I started with the gospel, just what my dad was talking about last week, examining, doing apologetics with him, answering him questions. Well, let's go here. What does God say about salvation? Yada, yada, yada. The other one I had to start with, with answers outside the Bible. I, that's Where else are you going to start? You can't try and convince somebody to repent of their sin if they don't think they're a sinner. And they don't think there's a God that, that actually does condemn sin. They, you can't do that. You have to start elsewhere. So, understanding who you're working with and really meeting the culture where they're at. So, how can we do that? How can we do what Paul did and meet the pe- people uh, where they're at in their culture and Really, I want to clarify, again, like I said, when I say culture, I'm not, I'm not necessarily talking like American culture versus European culture. Uh, that's important. You need to understand that, especially if you're going to be a missionary, understanding the different cultures and whatnot. But I think we can go deeper than that. Um, what about the Des Moines metro culture versus other cities? Do you think that they ask, do you think that people here ask different questions than they do elsewhere? I think so. How many of you guys in a raise a hand have ever talked to a Mormon? Yeah, I would say a lot, if not most of us, just randomly, just one time. Now, how many of you guys talk to a Mormon on a daily basis? We got one. That's it. I mean, right? It might be a little different if you lived in Salt Lake City, though, right? Because there's a lot of Mormons there, so you might have to run into that a lot more, right? So, uh, uh, but also, I think we can go even deeper than that. And this really is essentially what I want to uh, get you guys to think about today, is Don't even think country. Don't even think city. I want you to think your culture. Who, what questions are being asked in your culture? The culture of the people you work with, uh, the people you go to the gym with, uh, your friends that you're hanging around uh, with the weekends. What kind of questions are they asking? That's really essentially what we need to be answering. I, I, Yeah, I think that those are the kinds of questions that we need to answer. So, uh, uh, because honestly, the the reason why I think you have to think through this is because uh, you you don't, uh, I I wanted to think about this because, I don't know, I'm trying to find words here, it it may not be the wisest thing to spend all of your time learning answers to questions that you may never be asked, right? I mean, if if you're living in Salt Lake City, that would make a lot of sense for you to spend time trying to understand Mormon questions, but... If you're not going to be asked the question, I'm not saying you shouldn't care about those, but that's the trap I fell into when I first got into apologetics, is I thought that I had to understand all the questions, I needed to understand all the answers, I needed to know how to answer a Mormon, I needed to know how to answer an atheist, but I realized very quickly that I'm not that smart, (laughs) right? And I think that we would all agree that we're probably not that smart. We're not going to remember all these things, so don't spread yourself too thin. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't care about those answers, if you do hear a good argument for, for Mormonism or, or against uh, an atheist, but you know that you're probably not going to come across those types of questions very much, jot them down in your notes. You know, whip out your phone, take them out. Okay, there's a really good verse that I could go to. Do that. I, and be, honestly, I think the question that we should be concerned with the most is... What are the questions that are being asked about God by the people I spend the most time with? That's what we need to be figuring out. <clears throat> but here's the problem: That answer is going to be completely different for everybody, right? Depending on who you hang out with, that, the questions not all going to be the same. Uh, so I honestly, I can't give you a foolproof way to find out those questions and how to answer them you have to actually put in the hard work yourself and go into your culture and find out, okay, well, what are the questions that are being asked? And I think that goes right back to Paul's first point. You, in or, the only way you're going to be able to know that, the only way you're going to be able to know what kind of questions your culture is asking is if you have a heart for them. If you're spending time getting to know them, if you actually love them. So you have to put in the work. Um, I was talking to, uh, I didn't tell him I was going to call him out, but uh, Frederick Sandberg, and we were talking about this, but he was just, he was just talking about people he knew, he, he, he talked to on a regular basis, and he's like, yep, this person, this person's a believer, this person's definitely a believer, this one's no, they're Catholic, this one's an atheist, this one's agnostic, and I'm just sitting there like, that's a perfect illustration. That's somebody who has dissected their culture that they're living in, has understood okay, this is the worldview that they're in. These are the questions that they're asking. Um, So, what I can't do, I can't give you a foolproof answer but I can give you an an example of how I went about uh, asking the questions in my culture and then how I went about answering them or trying to answer them and I'll I'll share that with you here in a minute. And the way I did this is uh, I figured that on average I hang out with on average, 18 to 30 year olds. So what I did is I came up with a questionnaire and uh, I started asking my atheist and agnostic friends um, that all fall into that category, all fall into that age group, uh, questions about God and whatnot. And I I got about, I, I asked and about 40 of them said they would do it, but in classic millennial fashion, about 20 of them actually did it. And then about a handful of them actually got together with me, and sat down, and it was a really good conversation. I'm not saying that that's what you need to do. If you want to do that, that's great, because I'd be honest, I'd be honest with you, it's, it is really effective. It's a very effective way to do it, and you'd be surprised about how many people actually want to answer questions about God if you just straight up ask them. Um, so either way, so using my culture as the example, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through some of my questions to them, and then talk about their responses to my questions and then walk through how I would answer them using apologetic arguments, okay? Now, again, I understand this is my culture. This is not necessarily the questions that some of you guys are going to be asking. If you do hang out with a lot of atheists, then yeah, these are questions that you're going to be asking, so you probably should take more note or or be more aware of these kind of arguments that I'm about to go through. But for the rest of us, it falls back into that category of Mormonism or whatnot. If you, even though you might not be able to, or be a, being asked that question, you still should be taking note of it, and it's still going to be profitable. So, either way, all right, let's get going. Um, these are some of the questions that I asked in my questionnaire. What... The universe clearly exists, but do you think... Or, or sorry, but what do you think caused it to exist? Do you think that it's possible to know what caused the universe to exist? Do you believe that there is nothing but material in this universe or that there is something or someone outside of nature? Um, now, obviously, like I said before, this might not be questions that you come across with or may not even want to ask somebody, but it was a really fun exercise I did. I mean, I got a plethora of answers and it was really, really interesting and, and you kind of learn a lot about your own culture. So these are all my friends, I'm looking them up on Facebook, I'm texting them and whatnot and, and the overwhelming response, all but one person that actually did this, this question, the overwhelming response went something like this to, to those general three questions. Yeah, there might be something out there, but you can't really know for sure that something or someone caused the universe to exist, so therefore there's no real way of knowing that a God actually exists. And I would say that if you've ever talked to an agnostic, that's a pretty common question, or that's a pretty common answer, I would say. But really, the, the answer, or the question that we need to answer from this is, is it plausible that something or someone caused the universe to exist? and my mind went immediately to now i know that's that's one of those obnoxious words but <clears throat> you don't need to know the obnoxious word you just need to know how it works right okay so the cosmological argument the reason why is because it's extremely memorable <clears throat> as you can see right there it's three basic premises everything that begins to exist has a cause the universe began to exist So, therefore, the universe has a cause. And this is trying to answer that original question. Is it plausible that something or someone caused the universe to exist? So, let's do this thing. Let's actually dig into these three premises right here. The first premise, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Is that true about what we observe in our universe? Well, let me ask you ladies something. Have any of you guys went to bed pregnant and then woke up, or went to bed not pregnant and then woke up nine months pregnant the next day? I see some Nemers here. That might be true for the Nemers family, because those guys are sprouting out babies like nothing. But for the rest of us, there, including myself, for the rest of us normal people, um, there was a past event, we don't need to go into any more detail there, that caused that baby to exist, was there not? And, and when you think of anything physical, you take a book You take a car, you take a burger, you can trace anything back to how it got here, you come to the exact same conclusion. It didn't create itself. It didn't pop into existence. Physical things don't pop into existence on their own. Something or someone caused them to exist. So, by just looking at that, it seems that premise one checks out. So, then you go on to premise two. The universe began to exist. Is that true? Um... Well, back in the early 20th century, that's in Einstein's time, really the scientific consensus um, was that the universe was eternal, that the universe had been here for forever, and it's going to be here for forever. So, obviously, if we have an eternal universe, then there's really no need for a creator. Therefore, there's really no need for God. But, as with all science, new discoveries pointed to the fact that the Bible actually was correct and that the universe indeed had a beginning, and it really proved that, holy smokes, Genesis 1-1, they, were, he, they weren't lying, you know. The universe actually had a beginning. And I'll just mention this. I, I love to talk about this, but I'm not going to stay too long on this. But um, we can talk about it later if that interests you. But just some reasons why we know that is, is when Edwin Hubble discovered that the universe is actually expanding and you might recognize the name, it's the guy who we named the Hubble telescope after, and when scientists actually put into uh, practice the second law of thermodynamics uh, in the universe, then the consensus that actually was, that the universe was eternal actually shifted completely. And then even atheists believe that the universe, okay, we submit the universe actually has a beginning. So, if you look at Alexander, this is a pretty funny quote by Alexander Vilenkin, he's a atheist uh, cosmologist. He says, scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Now, he realizes that's a problem, right? He realizes the problem because if the universe had a beginning, it has a cause. Well, what caused the universe? They don't have an answer for that. And even the famous uh, Albert Einstein, actually after looking at, in the Hubble's telescope and realizing, holy smokes, the universe is expanding, he famously said in his his accent, I now see the necessity for a beginning. So, everything that begins to exist as a cause, that checks out. The universe began to exist, that checks out. Therefore, the universe has a cause. So, going back to our our friends, uh, or the question we're trying to answer is it plausible that something caused the universe to exist? Well, it's not only plausible and possible to know, it's really the only logical explanation that something caused the universe to exist. And because we know that the universe, just like a baby, just like a book, just like a burger, can't pop itself into existence, it can't create itself, then we know that what caused it must be beyond the universe itself, the material universe, that is. It must be spaceless, now, now listen to these words I'm about to say and, and ask yourself if it reminds you of anybody you've read about. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused, and extremely powerful. That sounds a lot like God. <laughs> because, uh, in my opinion, it is God. Uh, but moving on, we can move on to the next argument, uh, or the next questions that I asked. Um, science can account for a lot of things we now know and understand, do you think that there are some things that science cannot account for? Another question I asked is, do you think that it's likely that humans got here by chance? Why or why not? And like I said before, overwhelmingly, everybody but one, I should say, they're they're agnostic. And there was one atheist, one strictly atheist, so I'm going to read his answers to this one. So for the first question, he said, no, science can account for everything. Um, for the second question, though, I'm going to read it because this is interesting. I want to I hone in on one word he does say. Uh, to the second question, do you think that it's likely that humans got here by chance? Why or why not? He said, yes, it's likely that humans got here by chance. There is no clear force driving our existence. It seems that a string of likely, and that's the word I want to hone in on, events that allowed us to evolve and prosper... So the question we need to answer at this point is, is it likely that a life-permitting universe exists? Is it likely that a life-permitting universe exists? And this really does fall into the, the argument from design. Uh, you're looking out at the universe. This is the Psalms 19 one where you're looking out at the universe and you're saying, holy smoke, something out here looks design and the specific obnoxious word is teleological. So you don't have to call it that. But let's look at what the science says. Is it likely that a life-permitting universe exists? Um, now you're going to have to follow me here, because again, there's going to be some more obnoxious words. But it's, uh, hopefully, I'll, I'll put out some pictures, and I'll use an illustration, and it'll be really good for you. I, I think this is one of the most fun arguments for God's existence. Uh, in order for a universe to be life-permitting, and that word is extremely important, because uh, just the fact that the universe exists, is, is, is amazing enough. But the fact that there can actually be life coming out of that universe is even more amazing. The fact that not just humans, but plants and, and birds and animals and they can all exist is amazing. So in order for the universe to be life permitting, there are dozens of cosmological constants that have to be exactly in place or nothing that we now know would exist. Now, I know that most of us including myself. We don't spend our time thinking about cosmological constants or even really know what they are, but to help you kind of picture it, you can picture it like this dial or like, you know, just like a lock right here. I actually have one in my pocket. Uh, And and the cosmological constants, when you're thinking about it, it's just like all these little dials because each one the gravity, for instance, if you have gravity or, or even another one like the expansion rate, they're, they're all around these dials, and they have to be exactly, precisely where they're at. If one is right off to the left or one is right off to the right, then boom, nothing would exist. We wouldn't exist. And uh, uh, each constant has to be exactly in order for any of us to exist. So, so take, I just mentioned gravity, so let's actually take it, for example... Um, If the gravitational constant varied by just one in in ten to the 60th parts, the universe wouldn't exist. And what I mean by that, ten to the 60th parts, is that if the gravitational constant were this lock back here, there wouldn't be, you can see it has 40 dials. There wouldn't be 40 dials, there would be that many dials. So if you can imagine a lock for a minute with that many dials on it, that... Is just unthinkably amazing and dials in dials, and it is precisely where it needs to be. Not one off to the left, we wouldn't exist. One off to the right, we wouldn't exist. Now, how how likely do you think that it is that this constant just so happened to be where it needed to be? I don't think it's very likely at all. And that's just one constant. There are, like I said before, dozens of constants that are not just as that unlikely, but even more unlikely than that. I, I mentioned the, the expansion rate. The expansion rate, the, the gravitational rate is 10 to the 60th. That's 60 zeros. The expansion rate is 10 to the 120th power. That's 120 zeros. And that's all the dials. And they are all perfectly exactly where they need to be. You'll you'll talk to an atheist and they'll say, well, yeah, I mean, gee whiz, what's everybody's gotta win the, somebody's gotta win the jackpot, right? I mean everybody whoever's going to the lottery, somebody wins. We just happen to win. But that's not really the case. We didn't just win the jackpot, we would have to win the jackpot over and over and over and over. And over and over again, because all of these constants are just so perfectly balanced on top of one another, and if they weren't, none of us, even one of them, all of them are perfect, but one of them was off just by a little bit, poof, we wouldn't exist, but let me illustrate this real quick, because I think we would all agree that it's going to be more likely for one of you guys to guess the combination to this lock than it would be for the gravitational constant to be exactly where it needs to be. I I hope you would agree. Uh, Math would back me up on that. But let me get a couple volunteers. I got to call on my buddy Brett Funkhauser and bring Aaron up with you. So the both of you guys come up there. These are my friends. Uh, Give them a round of applause. Make them feel welcome. Brett goes back. I even have one of my oldest friends, Dylan Eisenhower, back there, but I told him I wouldn't call on him or pick on him, so either way. Okay, so should we let's give them a crack at this and see if they can lock it. We'll see how it goes. Just give it your best shot. You only get one shot, remember. Just one shot. Oh, I'm sorry. No, close, but no cigar, my friend. All right, Brett, let's see what you got. But Brett's a pretty lucky guy. I think he's Irish. Not sure. We'll see. No, he's not Irish. Thank you, Joe. Oh, Brett, you got so lucky. Oh my goodness. Now, who here thinks that Brett got really lucky? That was really good, Brett. What do you mean? You don't think you got lucky? What do you think happened? I gave him Brett. Did I give you the answer? Okay, now you're just lying. Thank you, thank you. Give round of applause, guys. Good work, good work, good work. Okay, thank you, guys. That was good. But think about it for a second. Isn't it interesting that not only are we skeptical of chance, but we infer intelligence? Let me repeat that. We're skeptical of chance. Some of us might have thought, wow, I can't believe he guessed it. But then he thought about it for a second. Ah, wait a minute. No, 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 there's got to be something behind that, right? There's got to be a mind behind that. There's got to be, there's no way that he guessed that on his own. <laughs> Guys, that's the exact same truth for the universe. That is the exact same thing. Um, we all thought that there's no way that could have happened, but... <laughs> It's true. And when we look at the universe, we see just how unlikely all these things are. And not just this. I mean, are you kidding me? This is nothing compared to just one gravitational constant, let alone dozens of them. And yet, there are those who still believe that God does not exist. But even at this point, there are a lot of atheists who, still, who, who would agree that it really does look like it's fine-tuned. Um, but we're running out of time here, so I'll hurry up and I won't read those. Well, just one. Um, Stephen Hawking said the remarkable fact, he's a famous, a famous atheist. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to be very finely tuned uh, or adjusted to make possible the development of life. Um, so, going back to my friend's answers, is it likely that the events, or that this, is it likely that they allowed these events to prosper or that we were allowed to evolve and prosper? Well, no. The odds of this happening by chance would be considered a numerical impossibility in any other case. The fact that someone would even keep the pipe dream alive of us getting here by chance actually shows more about the desire for God not to exist and less about the desire to follow the evidence. So honestly, the common sense conclusion would be that the universe looks designed because it is designed. And that goes right back to Psalms 19. I mean, this is the whole point of these arguments. We shouldn't shy away from them as Christians. Um, we should embrace them and say, okay, these arguments actually pump up my, my understanding of Scripture. These arguments actually bring a whole new light when I'm looking at Psalms 19 and saying, holy smokes, okay, this is legit. The, the universe really is something that God created. Now, I had another argument that I'm going to go through, but we're running out of time, so I won't go through it. And it was the moral argument. And really, I think that that one, as an apologist, is absolutely key to bridge the gap from getting somebody to believe that God exists then getting them to believe that the gospel is real, to getting them to actually believe in the gospel. Um, But really, the important thing is about these arguments is that you need to be careful, because especially even the moral argument, you can come off as a very, very cold Christian, when you give them these very cold philosophical systematic answers and and sometimes they're just going to write you off Uh, what we need to do is we need to be bridging the gap constantly to the gospel and that was Paul's last point um, was that he had uh, a mouth to speak the gospel if you look in verse 30 if you're still in Acts it says therefore having overlooked the time of ignorance God now commands all people everywhere to repent and this is so important Because when we look at this, Paul used the arguments. He used the good arguments, but he didn't stop there. He he got to the gospel. He he saw the culture where they were at. He met them. He understood them. He used good arguments to reason with that culture. But then he made a beeline for the gospel. And uh, we have to be doing that exact same thing because if we don't, then we're going to end up like that wide receiver who who returns a kick for 99 yards and then fumbles at the one-yard line. Right? I mean, you did everything you needed to do. You loved on them. You were their friend. You gave them good reasons to believe that God exists. But you didn't give them the gospel. You didn't give them what they needed to hear. So we always have to be making a beeline for the gospel. Um, And I might hit on the... Uh, moral argument next week if you guys come, but that's a Richard Dawkins quote we didn't get to. That's okay. So to end it off, what we need, if you want to be, you're all apologists, right? You're all apologetic evangelists, every single one of you. Um, But if you want to be a good one, these are the three steps that I think Paul is trying to tell us in Acts 17. You need to have a heart for the lost by learning to love and spend time with people. You need to have an eye for the culture by finding out what questions are being asked by those you spend the most time with. You need to have a mouth to speak the gospel because if we spend all of our time answering questions without getting to the gospel, we didn't give the people what they needed the most, right? Uh, It's about wrap-up time. You guys were great. Thank you for your participation, Brett. Uh, If you come back next week, we are going to do a little bit. I'm not going to call you individually to come up here, but what our plan is, is to get into groups, and we're going to give you questions to mull over with your groups, and then my dad and I are both going to be up here, and then we're going to walk through. So we even might be a little bit pushing back on you a little bit. Not too much. We're going to make it a very profitable, practical how would you actually answer these questions? You had two weeks of teaching how to answer questions from the Bible, the importance of answering questions from the Bible, and then this week, how to answer questions outside the Bible. And really, what I wanted you to take home was go home and ask yourself the question, what are the questions my culture is being asked? Ask yourself that question. Um, But then next week is going to be very practical. So thanks, guys. Let me pray here, and then we can take off. (laughs) Dearly Father, Father, uh, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for the fact that it is reliable, um, that you, you, we do have the, the living and active, uh, God-breathed word in front of us, Lord. But also thank you for uh, the, the good reasons that you've given us to believe in your existence, even outside of your word. Uh, and we really shouldn't be scared or, or ashamed of those types of answers, Lord. But more importantly... I pray that you would give each and every single one of us a true, deep heart, a broken, broken heart for each lost individual that we see, uh, that we're, we're working out with, that we work with, Lord. I pray that even this week you would specifically give us an opportunity to run in with somebody who doesn't believe and that we would be able to put what we've heard today into practice, um, that we could be able to ask questions and just get to know them on a personal level and then eventually get to the gospel. We love you. In your son's name, amen.